0: All right. Hello. My name is Cassie Prolongo and I'm a science communicator, at the Bay Area Environmental Research Institute at NASA Ames. And today I'm interviewing Vince Ambrosia, who's a senior research scientist at Ames. He's also an adjunct faculty member at the California State University Monterey Bay. Um, in addition, he also works as an associate program manager for wildfires at the NASA Applied Sciences Program, which is located at NASA headquarters. So it's really nice to meet you today, Vince. Thanks for having me. All right, so I think it'd be good if we could talk a little bit about your science background and really what you're working on currently.
1: Sure, gosh, my science background. Um, I come at this through, after about 40 years now, I've been working at NASA Ames in uh, Earth observations uh, from both airborne and satellite platforms. So dating back to about 1980, when I started at NASA Ames, uh came out of grad school, University of Tennessee, where I focused on uh, geography, biogeography, and remote sensing. So my background in kind of earth observations goes back to even my undergraduate days, 1974 through 1978. So I've got wow. a long heritage of working with um, uh, earth observation data in support of earth sciences, in support of, uh, you know, vegetation uh, analyses, you know things that have evolved into climate change, obviously. But uh, So, yeah, um, that's kind of a briefing about my background. And more recently, uh, I'd say, well, gosh, I've been working in fires uh, since the mid-1980s too, also, and um, looking at fires from the perspective of their destructive environment, but then transitioning to how we can really use the science that we've built off of uh, our Earth observation capabilities. and ingrain that or develop and mature those capabilities into operational use by our various partners, uh, both within the United States and throughout the world. So it's sharing that Earth observation information to support uh, wildfire management decisions by our, uh, as I said, like our state and federal partners, but also in the uh, greater global community on sharing the NASA capabilities of Earth observations in those operational contexts and how that can be Transformed into uh, into use and operations by other uh, other nations throughout the world that uh, that might not have those advanced capabilities as we are uh, afforded here, both in the United States, obviously, and in uh, the European uh, Earth observation systems portfolio as well.
0: Mm. So, how did you get involved with Earth observations, and how is it uh, differentiated after over many many years, as I'm sure it's changed
1: quite a lot. Yeah, so basically it started out when I was an undergraduate uh, entering uh, entering college for the first time. wanted to be a mechanical engineer, uh, but took a course uh, early on in my freshman year from a professor in the geography department that talked about, um, you know, uh, biophysical geography and uh, the study of place, and that just intrigued me. And one of the things that he said back in, God, so this is 1974, I guess, was that a good 50% of the world was inadequately mapped. And I thought saw that as, wow, what a great challenge, what a great opportunity to, to be a pioneer, so to speak, or to help be that pioneering forefront of, uh, of uh, studying our planet and knowing its geophysical boundaries, knowing uh, the vegetation communities. Things like that. Um, so that's really what got me started back, probably, you know, this, this uh, come to Jesus, if you want to <laughs> call it, in uh, 1974, that this is the path I wanted to take. And so I continued to focus on uh, remote sensing in the geography department. In those days, it was analysis of Landsat data, which had just been launched in the early 1970s. So uh, Landsat multispectral scanner data that we uh, visibly interpreted it was just about the start of uh, computer programming. And, um, and, uh, primarily what we did was our analysis via, um, interpretation of printed scenes. And then we moved into, as I uh, worked towards my senior project efforts, you know, we started to delve more into some of the software systems that were available to do earth image analysis, very rudimentary and simple. So that kind of led me down this path. And then, um, uh, through grad school, uh, doing analysis of vegetation communities in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park back in the late 70s. And then that led me to NASA Ames. Um, And I can say that when we started at NASA Ames and Earth Observations, or when I started in 1980, we we were still doing um, remote sensing data analysis on punch cards uh, set up for computer runs and for overnight runs. And so, you know, I used to have these stacks of, uh, of punch cards to run image classification jobs on Landsat data, and those would take me overnight and, and then analysis and the period of performance for analyzing the scene data would take me maybe weeks to do, things that we do now literally in uh, a matter of seconds or nanoseconds on processing Earth observation data. So the field has grown uh, considerably, and uh, rapidly due to uh, expansion of our our computer environment, our computerized world. And now we are uh, fully expecting to have information and and resources in near real time or in real time to affect our decision processes. So that's some of the challenges that we face and especially I face in that disaster monitoring uh, realm, um, wildfires is uh, how can we take some of the lessons that we've learned within the Earth Observations Program at NASA, some of the technology developments we have in transmitting real-time data and doing real-time on-the-fly analysis of satellite observations or aircraft observations and deliver that in real-time to partner agencies so they can make effective management decisions, in our case in the wildfire world, how to make effective uh, management decisions on deploying resources Either nationwide or locally, to uh, remove people at risk, to look at fire propagation models, to look at uh, integration of Earth observation capabilities that improve our understanding of um, health issues related to plume development and plume movements, uh, to try to um, evaluate you know populations at risk from from uh, fire plumes. Um, smoke plumes and the like. So, I mean, it's come a long way in the 40 years or 45 years that I've been involved in this world, almost like from the, from the time of chipping wheels out of a uh, stone or rock to, uh, to the capabilities of, uh, of, uh, you know, flying unmanned vehicles over, over wildfire incidents and collecting data. So um, it's grown quite considerably and uh, um, you know, obviously uh you have to we have to keep up with the times and and uh, learn to uh, to absorb and integrate new observation capabilities constantly but that's exciting too because um, that leaves us never stagnant uh, for understanding our uh, our environment
0: that is that's an amazing story actually just hearing the how things have progressed over the years is absolutely phenomenal. And one of the, I mean, I was going to ask you about certain challenges and all these other things, but I think you've answered it beautifully. And one of the things actually just hearing what you're talking about is, and maybe slightly away from science, but just as a human, you know, things are happening in real time. Now, how, do you think that things have gotten more stressful in a sense that you have to respond to things so quickly now as opposed to looking at the research and it taking time? Or has that gotten better as the science gotten better because of it um, being able to respond so quickly?
1: Yeah, the, uh, the 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 advancement of science capabilities or research and analysis capabilities of Earth observations um, has improved dramatically over the years, allowing us to to basically transition from doing pure research and pure understanding of our science data collection efforts into basically looking at how we can take those understandings if they're at high maturity level, uh, applications readiness level, we call them in the applied science world. In other words, take those, uh, the low hanging fruit off the research and analysis that's done, uh, baseline research analysis, and see if we can't. Uh, produce products that are usable to the community, um, not just the research scientists, but to the uh, the management, the community. In our case, the disaster management community. So that's a big challenge. And then, as you develop those capabilities to deliver that real-time information to to that community, they're always the ones that are asking, "Well, what if? What if we look at uh, other sensor data? What are the capabilities?" So those feedback loops go back into driving, therefore, our research and analysis phases again to answer those questions. Not so much the uh, pressing scientific questions, but on uh, pressing uh, societal benefit questions. Uh, how are how are these uh, how are how can we look at new analyses of data to improve our science or our uh, societal benefit understanding of the importance of the earth observations that we're looking at? So there's kind of a feedback mechanism between pure science and applied science uh, on how we progress forward in the, uh, especially in the in the fires community or in the science community, where we're learning things through our science endeavors uh, that have applicability, applicability to uh, to you know put to public interest and public use.
0: So, did you have uh, a lot of mentors and other colleagues who have really shaped your career path? You mentioned this professor when you were thinking about mechanical engineering before you got on this on this path. But whether at NASA or other outside realms, have, have you had these mentors who have helped shape your career?
1: Sure. Um, the, the, obviously, the start of my career with the um, professor uh, in undergraduate school really was a, a, a formative beginning of everything. You know, when you're a 18 19 year old and uh you know discovering new opportunities after just getting out of high school and to be enlightened uh, and informed by this dynamic personality uh, that that really made me understand that uh that the world was uh was out there for more discovery <laughs> and so you wanted to be that discoverer so i'd say that was the, the kind of foundational um uh mentorship that i received early on Following that, probably yeah, there's been a number of various mentors at uh, at NASA, uh, NASA Ames, uh, NASA headquarters. That um, not so much maybe direct mentors as people that I've understood to be, you know, these are the leaders that I need to pay attention to in, in this topic area. But one of the things I've come to understand after forty years of working at NASA is the the mentorship perspective is not so much on having a tremendous scientist at your beck and call or a Nobel Prize winner that you could uh, study under. It's really uh, having a mentor that uh, is a communicator. So, you know, it's those people that maybe not did not were not tremendous world renowned scientists, but were effective communicators um, that really make a difference in a person's life and probably I would say that those people had more of effect on mentoring me and how I wanted to communicate and how I wanted to work on my understanding of the the needs of the applied sciences community and others. So some of those have been at NASA Ames and some have been elsewhere. And it's kind of like learning from afar, um, what are the the traits or characteristics that I want to have in myself uh, that come from learning from these mentors that uh, displayed these traits and characteristics that I found valuable and pertinent, how to how to work and uh, deal with people effectively. So, people management, um, how to ask questions, uh, how to communicate in difficult situations. You know, under stressful situations, how to appropriately handle those stressful situations. So, it was mostly uh, mentorship forged through not only scientific mentorship, but in uh, people and personnel mentorship and how to communicate with people effectively to, you know, reach um, win-win situations that are best for, you know, your partner entities and, and best for uh, your own growth as well.
0: So would you say people who are early career or thinking of coming on board or even thinking about a career in science, would you say that it's fair to have them grab on onto a mentor as soon as possible or any other, Tidbits of things that you've learned over the years that you would want to maybe you could have told yourself back way back when when you first got <laughs> started.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that's a hard one to to answer, but uh, yeah, one of the things that that I did to kind of I won't say rise through the or progress through the uh, organization through the Earth Observation Community organization is early on when I was a, a graduate student, um, I started participating in every workshop or conference that I could in my field of endeavor. And by participating in those workshops, not just taking the classes, but offering to support as part of the staff, you know, junior staff at that point, whether it was going and getting glasses of water for people, but being involved in that community from the start, um, helping out in workshops, helping out in training exercises, organization, uh, organizational meetings, international conferences, just volunteering to to support the efforts, and therefore you get to know those in the community that are the key players that are advancing, um, in our case, earth observation capabilities. And you become a known entity to them as somebody who has a can-do attitude, can-do attitude to support the growth of our uh, science community. So um, that's what I'd suggest as a mentorship. Look for those opportunities to to say yes to everything that... um, that comes down your line that might be thrown in, in uh, into your field of interest. In my case, it was, you know, remote sensing conferences. I say yes to, well, you know, if if you guys can fund me to go to this remote sensing conference, I'll support it as a, a student helper student aid. And that allowed me to therefore get involved with these communities and learn at a much more rapid pace. So I think uh, that ability to involve yourself in everything you can in uh, in the communication amongst various professionals like at, at conferences or workshops to uh, to basically get to know that community from the inside. And then that becomes your core community that later on in life are your peers um, that when you have to share scientific endeavors uh, through conferences or the like, they're always there to support you as well. Um, they serve as a mentorship position, but then they're also there at all time to, uh, to kind of help you along and and boost your career. So um, yeah, uh, it's important to establish that mentorship um, capabilities, but those will come to you. Um, they'll uh, Those mentors will, in a lot of cases, just appear out of nowhere where you wouldn't expect them to appear out of. But just stay aware of, uh, of uh, whatever subfield you're working in, um, whatever field you're working in, is to try to in- immerse yourself into learning about um, what that community is about, learning about how to help forge the advancements in your field of work. Even at a young age, you can make contributions. Like I said, just helping out at workshops until you absorb all that knowledge. And sooner or later, you find yourself 10 years later running those workshops. And, uh, and so I think that's a, a good kind of mentorship um, um, statement that I would say to, to young and upcoming scientists, just be absorbed in, in what you're doing, and and uh, and it'll come to you. And those mentorships will just fall into place. You'll hand, be able to handpick the people you want to study and work with because you see those as being dynamic leaders, effective communicators, good scientists, um, and just you know have a have a very human touch for
0: communication. I think that's an excellent segue into something else that I wanted to talk to you about, um, get your opinion on we're now living in a COVID-based world. Uh, People's work has shifted. Our communities, especially when it comes to research, has shifted from maybe seeing people in labs to now talking much like how you and I are talking, uh, computer to computer. And it can be challenging. I mean, thank God we have these resources, but it can be challenging, of course, um, because you're not able to have these water cooler conversations or chatting to people in the hall. Has it has your work shifted at all and or have you had to make adjustments to certain aspects of what you are currently working on now that we're all sort of in this together at this time um, and trying to do the best that we can? Maybe in regards to what you're working on um, uh, at CSU Monterey Bay. I don't know if that's affected you
1: yeah so the the covid's issues has really changed our our whole dynamics of how we interact with each other um rather than the face to face meetings um we're're kind of tied to these video teleconferencing or even uh just voice voice conferencing and they're effective they're an effective tool in the short term i really think we really need to get back to uh human interaction that's where the real um that's where the real science, I guess, is really done, and where the real conversations occur. Um, you can think of it in light of a, a lot of the things that I'm involved in are uh, international conferences and helping to build and support international conferences, um, where you gather people from throughout the globe to present, uh, present their papers or present their scientific findings. But you know, it's not that that is that important. It's those in-between sessions those discussions, those hallway discussions, water cooler discussions, poster session discussions, um, the uh, uh, exhibit hall discussions—that are really where partnerships are built and made and forged. When you can look somebody eye, in the eye and have off-the-cuff conversations and understand where they're coming from, it's it's just a lot easier than talking over over a computer. So yes, those uh, those uh, those days need to return. We need to have those. Uh, interactions, and we need to have those uh, conferences and meetings because those never just end at four o'clock. Those, all all those conversations at those conferences go on in the happy hours afterwards or over dinner later that evening, um, whereas in our COVID era discussions, you know, we're all logging off at three o'clock or four o'clock or whatever, and and so those conversations then uh, become uh, email exchanges, you know, kind of interpersonal email exchanges. So I say, yes, um, we've had to transition and we're doing the, you know, we're, we're all trying to do the best we can with them, but we really need to get back to this uh, global community and interaction amongst the global community uh, through various uh, meetings and conferences. Uh, I had to postpone a couple of uh, uh, Critical fire meetings that we've had for the last um, about twenty years now, twice twice a year meetings with the community, and the community has been these are community scientists in remote sensing and earth observations, and they're community practitioners in the welfare realm. So we're putting together kind of the eggheads with the practitioners into an environment where uh, we have a lot of interaction and conversations. And in this COVID era, we had to cancel those uh, uh, that meeting and. That's kind of destructive to our community because that means for a six month period or a one year long period, we don't get to, to really have those off the cuff sharing of ideas and concepts and a maturation of partnerships. Um, I've seen more partnerships get developed and more potential business opportunities and collaborations get developed off of these little sidebar meetings than I do in um, COVID's telecons or video cons. So um, I really think we need to get, get back to that, and I'm hoping you know, that that can happen next year, because uh, I think it will really be a good link um, for our communities to really re-engage in a more effective manner, personally, um, um, rather than you know over electronic media.
0: Yeah, it, it seems like it's good up until a point, but there is no at least in my experience, there is no comparison when you're actually meeting with people in a a hall and able to have chats, Um, you miss that personal touch. And oftentimes with science, things can come from these personal relationships that you're able to build. So I wanted to ask a little bit about some current events that's happening. Um, These fires that we're literally witnessing here in California on a day-to-day basis really even an hour by hour, it seems like things are changing. Um, in particular on social media, I've been reading a lot of conflicting views, whether this is periodic wildfires or not. Um, I wanted to go back to the research. What sort of things do you have you, are you seeing in the research regarding these periodic fires in places like California? Um, what What is it that you would want to tell people if, if you were given the chance to tell people very wide public audience. What things would you like to to tell them about these fires happening?
1: Sure. Uh, the the fires are fairly regular event regular events in, in California and obviously throughout the West. But particularly the Mediterranean ecosystem dominant uh, community like California, um, similar fire events happen, of course, in other uh, Mediterranean ecosystems throughout Europe, Northern Africa. Um, those that border touch on the Mediterranean have Mediterranean vegetation communities, uh, places like Chile, uh, um, uh, Australia, uh, places like that. Um, so it's uh, wildfire is a pretty common event in those ecosystems. Um, how has it changed over the last number of, uh, of years and how has, are the California fires we're seeing occurring right now in August of 2020 really in uh, an abnormal event? Are they in a normal event? Um, at this point, they're a little of both. Um, the, the the California fires that we're having now are the kind of, you could say, have been built up to be a result of a number of years of continued drought uh, throughout the western United States and in California as well. And we have little periods in there of decent rainfall but um, in California, but for the most part, we've suffered through you know many years of, uh, of drought in the west and that has of course stressed the vegetation communities coupled with that uh the recent events uh, the lightning storms that we had those are uh, somewhat frequent in other parts of california like the sierra nevada mountain range um where we'll get afternoon lightning events dry lightning events in some cases that happen in a, a high country and and cause fires but um, this lightning event was unique in that it it was a uh, pretty much along the California coast and the slightly coastal inland mountain ranges uh, surrounding uh, north and south of San Francisco. So from you know 150 miles south to 150 miles north of the San Francisco uh, Bay Area and the whole coastal range along there, not really out into the Central Valley too much. We had a, a big series of uh, dry lightning strikes that occurred, over 10,000 lightning strikes. and. Um, so in that case, it was kind of an abnormal situation. We faced something similar to this in 2008, I think it was June of 2008. Major uh, lightning storm outbreak early in this fire season in June um, that started a huge number of fires in Northern California as well, farther north than us up to the Oregon border. And um, um, so it, it's not a peculiar event. It's an event that happens enough. Uh But um, given the uh, uh, coupling with the drought, current drought conditions, I'll let my clock go. (laughs) The bell is going to ring 12 times.
0: For whom (laughs) the bells toll.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So anyways, for the the California wildfires and these lightning storm events, um, there were you know, exasperated by uh, the uh, we're in. Also some other, uh, uh, you know, we had a heat wave uh, came through at that same time. Temperatures in the low 100 to 110 degree range for uh, this area. And that's usually about uh, 20 degrees or higher above normal, 25 degrees above normal temperatures. So you had this tremendous uh, heat, which helps to dry out vegetation, obviously, and reduce fuel moisture conditions. Then you've got, as I said, the coupling with the, um, with the uh, uh, drought conditions we had and it set up the perfect storm. Now we look at fire uh, growth throughout the West and we're, we're seeing that as well. What we're seeing over the last 10 or 15 years is a kind of a reduction in the number of fires, slight reduction in the number of fires, but we're seeing um, much bigger fires. So we're seeing these mega fire events. And over the last 15 years, we've probably seen, as far as acreage consumed in major events, the probably the 13 of the 15 largest fires in US history have been in the last 15 years. Seems like every year we're breaking a record for one new mega event superseding uh, previous year's events. So we're seeing that occurring more frequently now. Is that climate change? which includes, you know, the, the, the change in vegetation stress. It includes increased temperatures. Yes, it could be. What also is occurring, though, um, is you got to understand that we've gone through basically about 100, 120 years, I would say, of fire suppression in the United States. Um, that means, you know, our, 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 our management has been to put out all fires as we see them. And we've come to understand, through our science understanding of fires, that fires are a natural part of our ecosystem. And in a lot of cases, um, should be, um, are an integral component of vegetation, health, and vigor, to have fires periodically burn regions so that they don't burn at these uh, massive uh, uh, megafire scales that we see a massive intensity. So periodic fire on the landscape is good. It reinvigorates vegetation communities that are that need fire to, uh, to, to reseed um, and to clear out, uh, you know, dead and dying materials so that new growth can come, in, can come in. So, you know, over this 120 years that we've been putting out fires, you know, we've created this landscape that's kind of dominated by old unhealthy um, communities, vegetation communities that are obviously prone to insect infestations that increase their mortality rates. They're uh, a pathogen, uh, they're more susceptible to pathogen attacks, they're more susceptible to drying out and stress. And so therefore, they become um, a higher fuel load on our uh, within our ecosystems or within our communities. And so therefore, you know, we've had this explosive growth in these large fires that haven't occurred on landscapes that they should have been occurring on naturally for years and years and years. Now, I'll couple that with the uh, everybody moving into these urban, wild, and fringe areas. And so fires become a much more obvious disaster event to the community because they're affecting the people that are living in those communities. Um, People never hear really too much about the mega fires in the wilderness in Montana or in Alaska because they just don't see them as affecting populations rather than affecting a huge uh, vegetation component of our planet. So uh, I think with our, us moving into the wild and urban fringe, uh, um, more frequently, everybody wants to have the house, nice house in the trees on the mountainside or ridgeside. Um, that, that increases the potential damaging influence of fires, not only in our ecosystems, but then in our urban environments. And that creates this uh, "sky is falling, sky is falling" kind of scenario where everybody looks to, well, why can't you put out these fires? Um, you know, they're 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 burning down my houses. Well, we need cooperation from the community to really, uh, if <laughs> to really kind of modify some of our thinking about living in those urban, well, and fringe areas. And we need community to realize that <clears throat> we're going to have population. Density levels in those community, uh, those uh, vegetation community areas uh, that are uh, have a propensity to burn, that we need to have those people understand that they need to take um, effective action on creating um, um, clear space around their homes. So I think um, what we've seen over the years is that these fires are, yes, in some regards, are unique. In other regards, no, are not unique to, to what we've seen as the general progression and increase in fire size and intensities. Um, we're just seeing them hit in, uh, in more urban areas that uh, get a lot more people's attention and uh, therefore are affecting populations with uh, air quality issues and uh, loss of structures through the fires burning. So um, if you look at the general statistics nationwide for the U.S., we're at a fire, the uh, fire agencies, the uh, 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 National Interagency Coordination Centers and National Agency Fire Center in Boise, Idaho, has us at a, a, a fire preparedness level of five throughout the nation. That's the highest level we can be. It's like a class five hurricane, right? And all of our resources in the United States are involved in fighting fires. So it's a very high for fire preparedness level. Yet we're seeing... Uh, similar to lower numbers of fires occurring in the United States right now to date compared to the 10-year average. And right now, according to the 10-year running average of the average number of uh, acreage consumed in fires um, compared to comparing now to the 10-year average to date to today, that uh, we're only at about uh, 50 or 60% of the 10-year average for acreage consumed already. So in that regard, we're not really in a major f- fire situation. We're w- way under running acreage consumed in the United States for fires to date in 2020 versus uh, the last 10-year running average of uh, of that acreage consumed in fire. So in some cases, it's, it's not a... Um, a very severe burn season right now, and we're running under acreage consumed quite a bit. And uh, you know that that may change over the next couple of months, but it have a lot of catching up to do to the end of the fire season. So this is really not an abnormal year necessarily. It's uh, actually an under normal year in California. We're seeing an increase, obviously, in acreage consumed, primarily from these fires occurring during this August lightning strikes. And we're running about uh, 50% or so, 40% above acreage consumed to date for the 10-year fire history of California.
0: So would it be fair to say that we need better collaboration between people, the homeowners and also the scientists, the science and also local and and uh, federal government really to come across, <laughs> to have some better legislation if people are going to be building homes, fire in the, in these areas, but then also clearing, clearing brush and everything else as part of the natural ecosystem. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it sounds like there needs to be better collaboration. Would you, would you think that's fair to say or?
1: Yeah, there are a couple of things. It needs to be um, improved communication. I'd say mm-hmm. to um, improved communication to the, to the community as a whole, to the general community. Um, The the fires community, fire management communities are are aware of these issues, aware of the uh, the um, uh, vegetation state. Um, They've been, you know, their their job is to monitor vegetation conditions, monitor potential for wildfire conditions. So there's a good understanding there, Um, and uh, we just have to have the the general populace understand, um, you know, kind of the basis of of what these organizations do and how the scientific community, NASA or likewise, National Weather Service, other, other agencies, NOAA, uh, how they all contribute to improving the wildfire managers understanding of the scientific capabilities that play a role in, uh, in managing wildfire events or predicting wildfire events and then recovering from wildfire events as well. So just kind of better communication to the, to the general community on what, that our agencies are always all collaborating and we're working together. Um, you know, the general community probably doesn't understand that NASA's providing, you know, the real only satellite observation data of wildfire occurrence in real time to the to the wildfire management agencies throughout the globe. And that's all based upon NASA data that has been modeled over the years and, uh, and the modeling algorithms that are put in place for that fire detection have been built for um, 30, 40 years now, since 1980, and uh, have been matured rapidly. So uh, they don't see the contributions that the science elements are playing to our understanding of the dynamics of wildfire occurring on uh, the, both the natural uh, landscape and the man-made uh, landscape. So, you know, it, it's somewhat basic, basically to get uh, better uh, information out to the community through more effective communication linkages. Maybe something like we're doing today is, you know, the, so the general public understands the role that science plays and NASA plays in helping uh, uh, push towards societal benefit to our communities.
0: And helping to break down these sort of barriers is also really important to do. Yeah, yeah. So we're, we're almost out of time. Um, I have one more kind of curveball question to ask you. I'm sort of putting you on the spot, so I apologize about that, but you've been at NASA Ames for many, many years. Um, I think you said it was 40 years. You've seen quite a lot of things that have have changed and all all these different bits and bobs that you worked on. Do you have a favorite moment or anything that you'd like to share or anything that you've seen change over the years that maybe really surprised you Um, and don't feel bad I'm putting you on the spot but it just sort of popped in my head and I thought this could be a really cool way to end it um, just because you've really you've seen a lot of changes happen over the years
1: gosh that's a that's a tough one um yeah a lot of a lot of changes I don't know if there's anything that really sticks out for me probably um one of the coolest things that I think I've been involved in because of of NASA is um um, their unmanned vehicle program, uh, unmanned aerial vehicle program, and that it kind of was kicked off my involvement in the '90s uh, with uh, demonstrating the use of unmanned vehicle systems and supporting uh, earth observation capabilities. These are from high altitude, long endurance kind of sub satellite platforms that we were playing around with. Well, that really led me into. Uh, and, and a number of us, uh, a number of us team members, not just me, uh, but it led us into this thought that we could utilize unmanned vehicle systems and their long duration capabilities, their autonomous operations, don't need a pilot on board, uh, built for the dull, dark, and dangerous missions. We could use them, uh, set up a sensor system to observe wildfires and use them on wildfire events. And so uh, this all matured into about 2006 when we um flew the first series for the next three years, 2006, seven and eight, of NASA's unmanned vehicle system, the Icona aircraft with a a thermal infrared sensor system built at NASA Ames Research Center uh, to uh, use for real time data distribution from that sensor system to fire incident management teams on the ground. So it was a push of a couple of different technologies, unmanned vehicle systems, uh, aircraft data communications, real time onboard, Uh, data processing and uh, integration into a decision support system on the ground where it was a usable data set. And so it was great to see the advancement in unmanned vehicle systems and we really pushed the envelope at Ames and NASA Dryden, now NASA Armstrong, who uh, ran the uh, aircraft uh, uh, mission capabilities and we ran the uh, science data acquisition capabilities on that aircraft to really push that envelope of, of science and capabilities in those four major theme areas that became the, uh, the the kind of driving direction of where the wildland fire community, the US Forest Service Bureau of Land Management are now adopting those capabilities into operational context within their own agency to use for uh, small unmanned vehicle systems overhead for observing wildfire events. So those stepping stone, uh, moves that we made in the, in the 1990s and really seeing the growth and explosive potential of unmanned vehicle systems really led us to where we are today. So I would say that that's probably the one key event that really um, kicked off my excitement in, uh, in being able to work with the community was uh, the advancement in unmanned vehicle systems program that occurred at, uh, at NASA in the 90s, all the way through uh, to the current day and taking advantage of those scientific breakthroughs, you know, an unmanned vehicle flying around. And us, where we started, like myself, with punching jobs on punch cards just put to a front end of an IBM 360 computer to run overnight jobs, we can now do that autonomously onboard spinning discs on an unmanned aircraft and provide real-time information decision points and modeled information to the ground from that aircraft uh, flying overhead. That's, that's really the, the big cool thing I think that I've seen in my, uh, my time at NASA.
0: Cool, well, thank you very much, Vince. Um, pleasure talking to you and learning so much and um, looking forward to the next things that you're gonna be working on.
1: Cool, yeah, We're more than willing to share it. There's others of us in the community though that uh, have as exciting or even more exciting stories. So
0: you know, I look forward <laughs> to hearing from them as well. Thank you very much. Okay.